Well, my name is Ben. I'm an assistant pastor here at Shady Grove Presbyterian. Uh, real quick, before we jump into the sermon, I do want to draw your attention to one uh, quick announcement, and that is uh, next week uh, in this room we'll be doing a, uh, a joint Bible study where I'll be sharing a little bit on what it means to speak to skeptics today in the world that we live in, and so I hope you'll come out and uh, join us for that. Well, today is Palm Sunday. It's not every uh, day of the year that we have uh, kids come walking down the aisles with palm branches. As, uh, I'm sure many of you would enjoy that, though. Um, so today we are not only sort of getting into Easter week, but we're also ending the series which we've been in for the last few months, which, which is on the Psalms, okay? So we sort of have a twofold task ahead of us this morning, end one thing and start something New. And so in order to do that, we're going to be looking at Psalm 118. You can take out your Bibles or your apps or whatever it is that you use uh, to follow along for that. If you're new here, if you're just visiting us and you don't own a Bible, I want to draw your attention to the blue paperback Bibles in the seats in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we invite you to take that home. That's our gift to you. We hope you'll take it and, uh, and read it. So today being Palm Sunday, this is the day where we celebrate Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's what we call it, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it's the day that the people of Jerusalem hailed him as their king, even though they didn't exactly know what they were getting themselves into. Today is the day he comes riding in to show that he is the anticipated king of Israel. And so as we turn our attention to Psalm 118 and read it in light of Palm Sunday, what we're going to find is that the thrust of this text, the thrust of Psalm 118, is that it's going to impose on us this question. Who is your king? Who do you follow? And who do you serve? And so let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word from Psalm 118. I want to do something a little bit unique this morning. I want to sort of try and maybe replicate how this would have been read in the temple or in the people in Jesus' day, okay? So when we read this, you'll see that there's five times, four times in the beginning and once at the end, where it says, his steadfast love endures forever. I want you all to read that, okay? Read that out loud. So we're reading through. There's five times to say that. Does that, does that make sense, everybody? All right. So let's go ahead and jump into the reading of Psalm 118 together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Let Israel say, Let the house of Aaron say, Let those who fear the Lord say, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. For it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me, and in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side, and in the name of the Lord I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns, and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was failing, but the Lord helped me. 
The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to sit under it this morning and not over it, judging it for ourselves. Teach us. Show us who we are following as false kings in our lives and lead us back to the one true king, Jesus. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Now there's two things I want us to see in this text together this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4 and I want us to see the reason for praise in verses 1 through 4, and then we'll look at verses 5 through 26, where we'll read about the king who is to be praised. Okay, so the reasons for praise and the king who is to be praised. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 together here. Now, Psalms 113 through 118, the six psalms taken together, they are what have become known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Egyptian, meaning that these psalms have become associated with the Passover, And Hallel is the word for praise. Okay, so these are the praise psalms that are associated with the Passover. So during that celebration of the Passover every year, these six psalms are the ones that the people of Israel would have been singing together. So when Jesus, when it says that Jesus and his disciples get together at Passover to sing hymns and songs together, this is what they were singing. Isn't that amazing? We have the privilege of reading it today. Psalm 118 was written to stir the imaginations of the Jewish people to remember their ancestors who were saved during the Exodus event. Its purpose is to remind God's people of his great works of salvation in history. There's a couple explicit connections here to the Exodus event. You find it in verse 14 where it says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And again in the verses 15 and 16 that follow, this use of right hand language. In these three verses, it's going back to Exodus 15. These are direct quotations from Exodus 15, which is when Moses sang to God, thanking him for deliverance through the Red Sea. Okay? So, as God's people sang Psalm 118, they would remember the Exodus. They would remember God's salvation 
in history. And the natural response when people hear of God, who God is and what he has done, the natural, the right response for us is worship and wonder. This psalm, it recounts numerous reasons for praise. It would actually be a good Bible study this week, maybe go back and and read through Psalm 118 and just list out all of the reasons for praise that this psalm gives. But I want to draw our attention to verses 1 through 4 because it's here where we find, I think, the last point of application for our psalm series. It's appropriate and necessary to remember what God has done in our lives, right? In the history of its people, in the history of our own lives, in the history of the world, it's good for us to remember what he has done. But beyond that, our thankfulness and our praise is not based on just what he has done for us, but it's ultimately, it's based on who he is. The highest good for our lives, the highest good for anyone's life in this room is to be found in knowing God and delighting in who he is. And so in verses one through four, we find that the God whom we worship, the God whom we follow, the God whom we praise is a God whose steadfast love endures forever. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. It's God's covenant love. It's a love that is bound up in his promises to his people. God has pledged himself to us in love. His love is a love that never fails. It never disappears. It never changes based on the circumstances of the day like ours does. It's not fickle like our love is. His steadfast love endures forever. And you know, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I study the Bible, the more I meet with people, you know, for counseling or discipleship, the more I've come to realize what is most often missing in our lives. It's not activities. It's not personal piety. It's not what we do. For many of us, you see, our lives have become so busy, our minds are so preoccupied, we've become consumed by a success-driven culture that we're missing the foundation of what makes us most human. Love. We're missing love. Jesus himself said it best in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, the, progress, the formula for progress in our lives, the formula for growth in our lives is not if you keep my commandments, then you'll love me. It's if you love me. That's what comes first. And I'm not talking about some kind of, you know, generic butterflies in your stomach, like summer camp kind of love, okay? I'm talking about a love for the God who has accomplished our salvation, the God whose steadfast love endures forever. And if at any point in our lives we find ourselves in despair, perhaps because we don't feel as if we're measuring up to our own standards, maybe we feel like we're a failure, 
Maybe life isn't working out the way we wanted it to. Or maybe there's just this constant feeling of dread in our lives. You see, the problem at that point probably does not have anything to do with what we're doing or not doing. It comes down to what we might call misplaced or disordered love. See, this last lesson from the Psalm series may be the most important one for all of us. We, as a people, must learn to rest and delight in God's love. Only his love is big enough to be the foundation for our lives, a foundation that we can build the rest of our lives upon. We build our lives on anything else. We build our lives on our career or our families or our looks and fitness, whatever it may be. If we do that, then inevitably the rest of our lives come crashing down. You see, here's the problem. Our love is not steadfast. It's not. It's fleeting. You and I, we're incapable of really properly controlling who and what we love. I mean, just think about it. How often do we fall in and out of love with people or things, right? We start new hobbies, and then we give them up a couple weeks later. I mean, do you know how many times I've tried to pick up an instrument again and to give up only like a week later, right? Our love, our, our interests, it change all the time. We buy new pieces of technology or new clothing thinking it's going to make us happy, and then a week later it's sitting on the shelf collecting dust. We enter into relationships thinking that this person is going to make us happy, and then when we find out what it takes to really love somebody, we, love the, we run the other way, right? We give all of our time and energy to work thinking it's going to fulfill us only to wake up 10 years later miserable. See, we're incapable of ordering our loves and our affections properly. And the Bible's answer to this, to this dilemma, is that we need someone from outside of us, someone whom we can trust, someone who we can really let into our lives and show us what it means to love and to be loved. The Bible's answer to our problem is that we need a king. Look with me now at verses 5 through 26, the king who is to be praised. Now, Psalm 118, the, the more you read it, if you're really paying attention, the deeper you get into the psalm, you can't help but feel like what it's talking about is a person, a person who, who knows God's salvation for himself, but who also accomplishes salvation for the rest of God's people. You just can't help but get that sense. Let's look at this. I mean, in verse 5, we begin reading about this individual who is praising God for personal deliverance, right? We've been studying several of these themes in this psalm series. The Lord has delivered me out of my distress. The Lord has heard my cry and set me free. God's presence calms my fears, particularly my fear of other people. The Lord is my helper, and he leads me to victory over my enemies. God is praised because he's a safe refuge, and he is better than trusting in the powers of man. He's better than trusting in governments or political parties or political leaders. 
But now look at verse 10. The nations surround me, and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now, who has the power to cut off nations? Any of you? Any of you have the power to do that? Come find me. If you do, we might need to, you know, get some help uh, if, if, you, uh, if you think that way, right? Who has the power to cut off nations? I mean, President Trump, he's in the news right now, right? Because there's this big hoopla about, you know, should we go to North Korea or not? Should he go negotiate or should we cut off North Korea, right? Who ultimately has the power to make that decision? The ruler of the nation, right? Rulers have power to cut off nations, We mentioned already in verses 14 through 16 this connection back to Exodus 15 after God's deliverance through the Red Sea. And while God was ultimately the one who accomplished that salvation, who did he use to do it? Moses, right? He accomplished his salvation through a person. And this is always how God works. He used Noah. He used Joseph. He used Moses, he used the judges, he used David. He always uses a person. And so then we get to verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. This is a command. This is a command. Open to me the gates that I may enter with my people behind me. Who is this talking about? Who has the power to command the gates of righteousness to open? Well, Psalm 24 gives us the answer to this. Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10, says this. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. It is the king who opens the gates so that his people may enter with him. Psalm 118 is talking about a king. And in the New Testament, we find that the king that this psalm ultimately celebrates is Christ. Psalm 118, it's quoted in two different ways in the New Testament. We saw one way from Acts 4, this use of cornerstone language. But more importantly for us is what we read in verses 25 and 26. These two verses are quoted in each of the four Gospels when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. This is where we get Palm Sunday from. This morning, we've been looking at how John records this event in his gospel. The word Hosanna, which is what the people shouted at Jesus. It comes from verse 25, and it means save us, we pray. Next, the people shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, this is coming from verse 26 in Psalm 118. Now, There's a couple important historical notes that we need to pay attention to here. The first is this. Jesus of Nazareth was not the first person that the people of Israel had tried to crown king. He was not 
the first person they had tried to crown king. You see, at any point in history, when a people group becomes oppressed long enough, they will turn to anyone or anything with the hope that it's going to be their salvation. And the people of Israel had turned to many messianic pretenders by this point, hoping they would be their salvation. Some of the more prominent ones include a man named Judas, son of Hezekiah. He may or may not be the same Judas of Gamala who's quoted in other historians. There's Simon, the slave of King Herod, who led a slave rebellion. People who followed him crowned him as their king. And then there's Athranges, the humble shepherd who aspired for the role of king and tried to lead a revolution against the Roman authorities. You see, all of these figures, like Jesus, they, crowned, they were crowned as king by their followers and then they were squashed by the Roman authorities. And these guys, these guys who led these revolutions, they were, they were bandits. Okay, that's the word that the gospel is used for them. They were bandits. And bandits, you can think of bandits as like kind of four different things that we, we might be familiar with today. One, they're like one part Robin Hood. Okay, they steal from the rich, give to the poor. They're one part mafia. Okay, like they'll protect you for a price. So the people sort of, they like them because they were protection from the Romans, but they also like, you know, follow us or we break your thumbs. You know what I'm saying? Okay, they, they were robbers. They were roadside thieves. And they were insurrectionists. That's what these men, Barabbas, right? Barabbas, he's called a bandit. That's who he is. They're bandits. And so this is the great irony of the crucifixion is Jesus is hung in between who? Two bandits. They regard him as nothing more than another insurrectionist that we're just going to squash. But you see, this raises the great question for us. If Jesus was just a man, if he was just another insurrectionist to be squashed by Roman authorities, then why is it that Jesus sparked a movement that changed the world in a way that is completely opposite from these other people who have been forgotten by the history books? Could it be that Jesus actually was who he said he is? The king, the Messiah who can actually deliver on his promises. So, the people putting their hope in him, they crowned him king, knowing not what they were getting themselves into. They knew not the cost of following Jesus. They declared him king and they laid palm branches at his feet as he comes riding by on a donkey. The use of palm branches, it signifies that people anticipated Jesus being the leader of a military uprising, right? Palm branches were a sign of military victory. That's who they wanted Jesus to be. You know, today when our troops come home, what do we do? We gather, we wave our flags, we have our banners, we show support. We have these great pictures when World War II ended, right? And Times Square, the big parades, and, you know, people are bending over, kissing each other, and all of these great historic pictures, right, celebrating victory. That's Palm Sunday. They wanted victory over the Roman rulers so that Israel would be restored to power and dominance. 
But Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome. He came to overthrow sin and death and the devil so that his people would be free. But while the people were wrong about who Jesus' enemy was, they were correct in realizing that Jesus was riding into battle. You see, we must not miss what is happening on Palm Sunday. It's an invasion. It's an invasion. Light is invading darkness. Jesus is riding into battle against the greatest enemies this world has ever known. Sin and death. Now, we read, you know, in Zechariah 9 that he comes humble, riding on a donkey. Humble does not mean necessarily lowly, okay? You see, because the donkey was actually a sign of royalty in ancient Near Eastern cultures. You go back and you read the book of Judges. It talks about the judges riding on donkeys, There are several figures mentioned in the history books talking about riding on donkeys. And the reason why they were associated as being royal is probably because they were the first animal to be domesticated to lead the royal chariots through the city. Okay, So they had an association with royalty. So Jesus, by sitting on a king, he is saying, yes, I am the royal king. I am the one that you say that I am. But a donkey, you know, it's still not a wartime animal, is it? It's not one that you exactly ride to go charging in to defeat your enemies, is it? As one of my professors used to say, anyone who rides a donkey into battle knows he is going to be slaughtered. Jesus rode into battle not to conquer his enemies through military might, but through, not through an iron fist, but through the laying down of his life. Now, of course, the story doesn't end there, does it? Because next week we gather to celebrate that Jesus was raised again to new life as the one who had conquered death, as one who will lead all who follow him through the gates of righteousness. The tomb is empty, the stone is rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out, but so that we could get in to experience the resurrection life for ourselves. But there is a cost to following this Jesus. There is a cost that the people did not know. He says shortly after his entry in John 12, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. With that kind of message, you notice how quickly the crowds abandoned him. A crowd on Sunday left alone to die on Friday. You see, the cost of following Jesus is you must really make him king. You cannot have Jesus as your savior if he is not your king. 
the one who invades every dark corner of our hearts, of our lives, in order to properly show us who and what to love. If we want to know what it really means to live our lives, it's going to be found in abandoning our self-interest, in abandoning ourselves as number one, in order to serve Jesus as King. You see, this goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. We all love something or someone the most. And whatever we love most, that is what we live for. That is what drives us and gives us satisfaction and meaning and fulfillment. That is what we have crowned as king. We say to ourselves, because I'm a member of this group, because I've accomplished this, I've done that, I know this person, I'm doing this now, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I feel like my life has some value. We all do it. You see, it's human nature to crown someone as king. It's our nature. We all live for something chiefly above everything else. And whatever we're living for, it's our king. If it's our career, we say to ourselves, this is how I know I'm going to be successful. This is how I know I'm going to be meaningful by well I, how well I perform. We lay palm branches at its feet. But when something goes wrong, when we have a bad day at work, when we lose our jobs, what happens? We spiral. We melt down. Why? Because our career is punishing us for our failures. You see, our careers, they're oppressors. They're a ruthless king. They're a ruthless master over our lives. Same thing happens in our family. If family is the ultimate thing we live for, our family members are our masters. Some of you know this better than me. You know, I only have a three-month-old. Many of you know that when our children are the only thing that we live for, when our happiness hinges on our children's happiness, they are our masters. They have bought us for a price. We've crowned them. Same thing happens with political and social causes. If that's what you're living for, that is your king. And whatever you're living for, your job, career, family, looks, cause, it does not serve you. You serve it. We've all crowned something. Ask yourself this morning, what have I crowned? Really, what have I crowned? Is there something that I've crowned in my life that has brought me pain? that's bringing me distress, that oppresses me when I fail, that leads me to despair when I don't measure up? Consider this Jesus, the compassionate and tender king who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
This Jesus is the only one who we can really trust as king, the only one who we can really trust and let him into our lives, into every corner of our lives to show us how to live, to show us what it means to love and to be loved. We all serve something. What do you serve? Who is your king? Let's pray. Father, today on this day of Palm Sundays, we celebrate that the King has come. But may we not be naive to come to this King with our own agendas like the people of Jerusalem did. Let us not come placing a false hope in this Jesus, thinking that he's going to accomplish our agenda and what we want for our lives. Father, teach us this day to lay down our arms, to give up our rebellion against the king, and to truly follow him, to let him into our lives that he might rule us and order us and show, it, show us what it means to live. May it be so this morning, Lord, that we cry out to you, Hosanna, save us, we pray. For it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.